All of you are grateful to see Mike here in good health. <laughs> yeah, we just don't know how things are going to go in life, do we? You know, but uh, look, looks like he's in good shape. So praise God for that. Uh, hey, um, in first of December we uh, started a short series on the Advent, and uh, and that's primarily centered on John 3.16. I noticed it got into the, got on the crosses here. Even, thank you, Sean, for starting with that song. Uh, it's kind of our primary passage here. Uh, and in December, we talked about the problem of perishing, because John 3.16 says, talks about that, but it also talks about the solution of love to that problem of perishing. In John 10, Jesus said, I came that they might have life, and they might have it abundantly. Okay, in other words, in fullness and forever. So today, we want to wrap up this short series by discussing the destiny of believers, which is eternal life. Now, I want to ask you a question. Think to yourself, given our experience in life and all the good things that we get, I know there's some not-so-good things, but all the good things, the blessings, the relationships, and the stuff that we in America get to enjoy, is there anything more important than the stuff and even the relationships than eternal life is there in your mind think about it god wants us to have it he wants to know what it is he wants to, us to enjoy it he wants us to know that we have it and he wants us to help others have it as well um, i want to thank uh, pastor john piper for the outline of this, uh, and he calls what we're going to get into here the stages of eternal life, and some of them are stages. Uh, I prefer to call them facets of eternal life, you know, like the, f the several faces you see on a diamond. Uh, and uh, you might want to consider where you are in the process, uh, but also try to get a better grasp on what the term eternal life really is. Uh, now, uh, sometimes you'll hear uh, teachers up here say, or it will become evident that the message is Bible light. Okay, I've done that, okay? Uh, now, this message is not that. There's a lot of verses on your handout, okay? Uh, and they're mostly out of the book of John. But my hope is that given the importance of this topic, that you'll be able to look at some of those verses and some of those passages and maybe memorize them and have them ready in case you have the opportunity to sow or to reap and help somebody understand what it means to have eternal life. And you, you may be able to, to take part in a harvest if God presents that to you. So we'll get started here. The first point is that uh, eternal life is in Christ. Uh, John 1 starts with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, we, we learn later that we're really talking about J.C. when we talk about the Word. He created 
everything. John, later there, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So eternal life is first and foremost the life of the Son of God. It is God's life. It's not something that we receive naturally, at birth certainly. Uh, we're all born basically spiritually dead. It is supernatural. So for those who make a genuine decision for Christ, it is a gift, not of works. We can't earn it. In John 17, Jesus spoke of himself in the third person when he prayed, you have given him, meaning himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And in John 10, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So as a supernatural act, we cannot conjure it up. We can't manufacture it ourselves. Eternal life is Christ's life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Secondly, eternal life come to us, comes to us through the word of Christ. Uh, in John 6, Peter says to Jesus, or asked him, Who, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life life. Uh, so eternal life in Christ is conveyed to believers through his word. He calls, him, he calls himself the word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when Jesus walked on the earth, he spoke the words of life. He instructed his disciples to go and teach others in the same way that he taught, praying to the Father that others would come to believe on him through their words. John 17 again, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and they, that, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and all are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Next is, God bears, this, this bears repeating from our message last week, last month, uh, that in the hearing of the words of eternal life, God draws people to Christ. In John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Christ is where eternal life is received. In John 5, Jesus reproves the unbelieving Jewish leaders who search the scriptures to find eternal life, yet they refuse to come to him that they may have that life. So we've got to come to him when drawn. God's word of life offers it, describes it, tells us how to have it, and beckons us to it. But we have something that makes us put in, be in a position to make a decision. We have free will given to us by God. That means that one can either stand fast in stubbornness or one can be drawn in to that beckoning. After John 3.16, Jesus explains that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked 
things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that he may be clearly seen, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Our only hope is in the gracious and merciful drawing of God. He overcomes our hatred for the light and opens our eyes to start seeing Christ, start looking at him for eternal life. You know, sometimes we talk uh, to others, loved ones or whomever, about seeing things differently. And this usually means in a different perspective or in a different light. Uh, These are things that we can already see or understand, but the encouragement is to look at or consider that thing in just a little different way. Now, with Christ, most people have heard about him. Culturally, Jesus clearly had more influence than any other figure in world history. A guy named J. Warner Wallace was an atheist criminal investigator when he heard someone say that Jesus was the most famous person in history. And he doubted that. He decided to investigate that claim. And what he found in his investigation was that not only was Jesus foreshadowed in the Old Testament, he found that the advent of Jesus was clearly uh, during the first time in history when his messages could be spread due to the advances of the Roman Empire in roads, in a postal system, in a common language. He found that it was the teaching of Jesus, the principles of the Christian faith, that, that prompted the pursuit of things like education, medicine and hospitals, science, and even the arts. Uh, the equality of the sexes in a culture where they were not equal. And finally, the abolition of slavery, eventually. It was interesting to me in what Warner explained that even in the arts, there are hundreds if not thousands of songs, both old and contemporary, not just the hymns and the the gospel music, but hard rock that Jesus is mentioned or is the focus. Yeah, sometimes it's negatively, but you got to ask the question. Why are the headbangers singing about Jesus if he's just a nobody? Jesus is mentioned or his teaching is ingrained in more of our culture than any other figure who ever lived. And this is what led Wallace, a hardened criminal investigator who relied upon hard evidence to further investigate and finally accept Christ as his Savior. So, cultural awareness of Jesus as a historical figure is clear. On the other hand, many do not really see him for who he really is, or they would be overwhelmed with his greatness, his beauty, his power, his goodness, his wisdom, and his love. Eternal life comes into our lives when we start to really see Jesus at a deeper, more serious level, and that's what God's drawing does in us. It opens our eyes to start seeing Jesus that we already see in the Word. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man, the old man being our sinful nature, and putting on life in Christ. 
And that life must go beyond our head knowledge of Christ. I grew up in a mainline church. I knew all about Jesus and all the stories and all that. But I didn't see him until I went to a frat house at KU. And I heard the gospel presented clearly for the first time in my life. Yeah, we must absolutely include that head knowledge, but it must influence our whole manner of thinking. This is not just the sense of knowing facts, but the ability to set our minds on the right things. This is so fundamental to the Christian life that Christian growth can even be described as renewing our minds. That's Romans 12. Paul explains that the Ephesians learned Christ. They not only learned about Jesus, but they learned him. This learning was a living, abiding knowledge of Jesus that kept them and changes us today so that our new man does not pursue the sin of the old man. Just knowing about Jesus isn't enough to keep us holy. Uh, Charles Spurgeon put it this way, So if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you must live with him. First, he must himself speak to you, and afterwards you must abide in him. He must be the choice companion of your morning hours. He must be with you throughout the day, and with him you must also close the night. And as often as you may wake during the night, you must say, when I awake, I am still with thee. Now, we receive eternal life through believing in Christ. This is what we talked about last month. When we hear the words of life and yield to that drawing power of God, believe in Jesus, we receive him into our lives, and with him we receive eternal life because he is eternal life. He said again, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through any other figure, not through any other religion, not through any other means of salvation. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Think about that relationship. By believing in Jesus, we unite with him in the way that a branch is tied to a vine. And the, the uh, living power of eternal life flows from the vine into us as branches. This is the great work of God that he's performing all over the world every single moment of every single day. Here's one that we may not have thought about. Uh, in John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not say will have, but has now and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. In other words, eternal life is not something you wait for after death. It is something that you have when you believe in your heart in Jesus now. And this life is eternal. This eternal life is a personal relationship with God the Father, God the Son. In John 17, Jesus defined eternal life like this. He was praying to his Father in heaven. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Eternal life is a personal, intimate knowing of God. 
last month, uh, I mentioned that it is better to inoculate your children. In other words, to explain why the false religions and world's views of that are out there don't make any sense. They don't match reality. Rather than to simply say, here's the Bible, believe it, and you don't, know any, you don't need to know anything else. Uh, when they're challenged, they will not know how to answer and perhaps may be persuaded that the Bible and their Sunday school faith is not the whole truth by some very artful uh, people out there. So I need to make a distinction here uh, to avoid some confusion we were talking then about fortifying the faith of the young. The inoculation analogy, I think, is still valid, but it stops at fortification. A personal relationship with a father is not like an inoculation against a disease or death that works unconsciously like a spiritual antibiotic. It is a conscious experience of knowing and relating to God. You know, if we, to clarify here, let's go back to Romans, to John 1, that was mentioned under the first point. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life is the light. That means that when one receives the eternal life of Christ through genuine faith, it sheds life, light on God and on Christ so that that person can know him and them personally. That person can see them far more clearly now than they, they could before. Before they saw the Father and the Son from a distance, perhaps with bad eyesight before they had faith. But after salvation, God enables that person to see enough to start drawing that person further in and further up in their faith. As faith increases, Life comes, and with it, the light starts to switch on everywhere. And the personal reality of God is so powerful that you and I can know and relate to him and have an even sweeter relationship and fellowship with him. In his prayer in John 17, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life brings the light of personal knowledge into the heart of the believer. Therefore, Christ followers know him, they live with him, and they commune with him now. Eternal life is not interrupted at death. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a little confusing. Maybe it sounds a little contradictory. We know that physical death in this life is a certainty for some of us sooner than others. Uh, the verse does not, of course, say that somehow we will avoid physical death. Rather, it says that everyone who has eternal life by faith will never have that life stripped away from him. Even when he dies physically, he will live. Physical death will not turn eternal life into a temporary life. 
Rather, the eternal life resulting from genuine faith starts at the point and will not be interrupted by our physical death. Eternal life will be made complete when our bodies are raised from the dead and reunited with our spirits. He is not only the life, Jesus will raise up believers on the last day. To go back to John 11, where Martha is complaining that Jesus arrived too late to save Lazarus from death. He said, whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? And all of us know of others who have died in the last few years, either loved ones or of our own or friends, perhaps close friends. 2 Corinthians 5 says that at death, believers are taken away from the body and are at home with the Lord. And in Philippians 1, Paul preferred to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, though it was more necessary for him to remain in the flesh at that time. So, we will have the most full experience of eternal life when Jesus descends with a trumpet, the archangels call, and the dead bodies of those who are in Christ are raised from the dead. In some way, perhaps we can't imagine this, but in some way, eternal life encompasses both body and soul. In John 6, Jesus said, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. We're going to spend the balance of our time on the last point here. Eternal life is just that. It lasts forever and ever. Now, here's a conundrum, a difficult question. Just how long is forever? And this is going to get us into another aspect of God that we don't often consider. Genesis 1, John 1, and most scientists agree with God's word that there was a beginning to the physical universe because that's what the evidence shows. Uh, In our feeble understanding, though, time did not start until creation. And the God of the Bible had to pre-exist creation in order to create So the only conclusion we can come to is that God is outside of time, just as he is outside of our concept of space. Uh, He's not just above it all, he is above our comprehension. Now, we can know God and know him personally, but why should we expect to understand him completely until he reveals himself to us in eternity? Now, another question. Do you not quake? Do you not tremble at the thought that so much rides on your spiritual awakening in this life? It's not a small understatement to say that eternity is a bit longer than this life. One preacher put it like this. said, if a small bird took a grain of sand from the coast and flew to the plains and deposited it there once every thousand years. By the time that pile was the height of Mount Everest, eternity would have just begun. 
Another question might be, why does eternity exist? And that's kind of an unfathomable question. Uh, but I can say that one answer would be that that's how long it will take for us to know the inexhaustible glories of God. One of the great leaders of the uh, Great Awakening in the mid-1700s was a preacher named Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards tried to describe in a sermon what it would be like to experience eternal life, seeing and knowing God forever. Now, uh, we've all had our experiences in life, and we kind of know how things go when you do day-to-day routine. Uh, And no matter the context or the environment, at some point, things can get a little monotonous or boring. And if you're old enough to remember Looney Tunes, uh, you might have this picture in your mind of heaven. And it's usually portrayed with a cherub of some sort sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp forever. Okay? (laughs) At least that's what I remember. Well, Edwards tried to dissuade his parishioners from using life as we know it now as a gauge for how we will experience life in eternity. He called it a fountain. The fountain that supplies the joy and delight which the soul has in seeing God is infinite. The understanding may extend itself as far as it will. It doth but take its flight into an endless expanse and dive into a bottomless ocean. It may discover more and more of the beauty and the loveliness but it never will exhaust the fountain. He went on to try to get his congregants to look forward to eternal life. He said, We can never by soaring and ascending come to the height of the love of God. We can never by descending come to the depth of it, or by measuring know the length and the breadth of it. Let the thoughts and desires extend themselves as they will. Here is space enough for them in which they may expand forever. How blessed, therefore, are they that do see God who are come to this exhaustless fountain. After they have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of years, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. Uh, You know, there are many books that have been made into movies, several of them about the Bible and stories from there. You know, think of Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, okay, classic. Or, you know, The Passion of the Christ, just to name a couple. Uh, And after all, movies are not only more visually appealing, entertaining, it's so much easier and time efficient to watch a two-hour movie than it is to sit down for hours and hours reading a book. And this is not to mention the reality that producers can make a lot more money at the box office than authors do with royalties. Uh, For the illiterate, you know, movies may be very helpful in communicating the gospel, like the Jesus film, okay? It's been translated into many, many languages and shown all over the world to people who can't read. Uh, We were able to do this in Haiti uh, because they had translated it into French Creole, which they can understand, and that's all good. But please remember that any movie based upon a book is an adaptation of that book, including the Jesus film. Uh, 
They had to make some decisions. Now, I think that Jesus' film stayed pretty close to uh, the Bible. Some video producers take more liberty than others. I've spoken before about The, the Chosen, a, a very popular, very well done and entertaining series that we have on TV right now, but which the producers admit that it is 95% extra biblical. The plots are made up. Now, if that video becomes the Bible for somebody, any talented, any gifted producer can pretty much be, you know, explain Jesus any way they want to, especially in this very, very dangerous culture which is in which reading has given way to visual things. On a personal level, beyond the reality, uh, beyond the issue of reality and truth, there's this thing called perception how we see in our minds, and this used to be called the sense of wonder, a God-given part of each one of us. Uh, this came in times past through reading books. Now, I'm not a great reader, uh, but I can honestly say that with the books that have been made into movies, uh, sometimes great movies with great stories, the great books that I have read always give a better, more powerful mind picture, if you will. Some of you may be uh, familiar with some of the movie adaptations of a few of the books from the Chronicles of Narnia uh, by C.S. Lewis, and I heartily commend all seven books to your reading, even if you see the movies. Uh, images from movies are immediately impactful, but seem to kind of for me anyway, come and go without much memory retained. The images that come from the sense of wonder and imagination through books seem to take hold and last longer. Now, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, but let me just, for those of you who are not, let me just give you a brief background. The setting is World War II, when London is under the threat of the German blitzkrieg. They're being bombed, you know, in the city. And so, some parents take their four children to a railway station so that they can be sent off to uh, an estate in the country where they'd be safe living with an old friend of theirs, a professor, Kirk. And the youngest of the four, Lucy, goes into a wardrobe. And she starts to go through the clothes. And eventually, she's going through trees, pines, I believe. And she comes to a lamp. And she finds herself in a place where it is always winter, but never Christmas. And she meets, she's met by a fawn, which is kind of a half person, half something else. Uh, and the, 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 the creatures in this land talk. At least a lot of them do, and they have all kinds of fanciful creatures. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and she eventually, or the children eventually that follow her, eventually run into a white witch who's in control of the land at that time. However, there's a rumor that a very dangerous but good lion is returning. And his name is Aslan. Uh, the, the, the children come in and they're made kings and queens of Narnia, which is kind of part of the lore of that time, uh, and they reside at the castle Care Paravel. And 
Throughout the series of the seven books, uh, these children and other children go in to Narnia and back to England on and off throughout. Now, uh, the last book is called The Last Battle. And I understand that there's a stage production, I think, by Max McLean under the name of Further Up and Further In that's, that's being presented right now. Maybe there's a movie in the making. I'm not sure. But uh, to wrap up today, I'm going to read portions from the book. Okay? Spoiler alert. Okay? The whole context of the Chronicles of Narnia is exposed in what I will read. However, certainly not I will certainly not spoil all the ways that your sense of wonder will work if you read the series throughout. Uh, after all these adventures happen, the children complete with the faithful Narnians the last battle. Aslan has told the children that they cannot go back to Narnia because it is no more. They come, however, to a new land. The children and the faithful Narnians who entered this land are amazed at this place because it looks like the old Narnia, but yet vastly different. I'm just going to read portions from here and there. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the high king. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small? It would have to be a, a, a jolly good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like the blue on those mountains in our world. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle, again, talking animals here, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled around, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. And then he mentions all the places from Narnia that he can see. But how can that be, said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed, and we even saw the sun put out. And Lucy said, it's all so different. The eagle is right, said Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. That was not the real Narnia. That, was the be that had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures you loved, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course, it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as a waking life is from a dream. This new land was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you will know what I mean. And finally, from the last chapter called Farewell to Shadowlands. Everyone 
you had ever heard of if you knew the history of these countries seemed to be there. And then they mentioned all these characters, all these friends that they had. And then one of them felt as you would feel if you were brought before Adam and Eve in all their glory. About a half an hour later, or it might have been half a hundred years later, for time there is not like time here, Lucy stood with her dear friend, her oldest Narnian friend, the fawn Tumnus, looking down over the wall of that garden and seeing all Narnia spread out below. Daughter of Eve, said the fawn, the further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden at all, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and sea and mountains. But they were not strange. She knew them all. I see, she said, this is still Narnia and more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below. Yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion, except that as you go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. And Lucy looked this way and that and soon found that a new and beautiful thing had happened to her. Whatever she looked at, however far away it might be, once she had fixed her eyes steadily on it, it became quite clear and close, as if she were looking through a telescope. Then she looked to her left and saw what she took to be a great bank of brightly colored cloud, cut off from them by a gap. But she looked harder and saw that it was not a cloud at all, but a real land. And when she had fixed her eyes on one particular spot of it, she at once cried out, Peter, Edmund, come and look, come quickly. And they came and looked, for their eyes had become like hers. Why, exclaimed Peter, it's England. And that's the house itself, Professor Kirk's old home in the country where all our adventures began. I thought that house had been destroyed, said Edmund. So it was, said the fawn. But you are now looking at the England within England, the real England, just as this is the real Narnia. And in that inner England, no good thing is destroyed. At this point, I'm going to continue, but I, you might want to close your eyes and just think about this, especially those of you who have lost loved ones and friends. Suddenly, they shifted their eyes to another spot, and then Peter and Edmund and Lucy gasped with amazement, shouted out, began waving, because there they saw their own father and mother waving back at them across the great and deep valley. It was like when you see people waving at you from the deck of a big ship when you're waiting on the quay to greet them. How can we get to them, said Lucy. That's easy, said Mr. Tumnus. That country and this country all the real countries are only spurs jutting out from the great mountains of Aslan. We have only to walk along the edge, upward and inward, till it joins on. And soon they found themselves all walking together, and a great bright procession it was, up towards mountains higher than you could see in this world, even if they were there to be seen. But there was no snow on these mountains there were forests and green slopes and sweet orchards and flashing waterfalls, one above the other, going up and up forever. And the land they were walking on grew narrower all the time, with a deep valley on each side. And across that valley, the land, which was the real England, grew nearer and nearer. 
The light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy saw that the great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant's staircase. And then she, be- she forgot everything else because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. Aslan turned to them and said, You do not look yet so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, you have sent us back into our world so many times. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt within them because they had this wild hope that arose that they might stay. Aslan said softly, there was a real railway accident. Your father and your mother and all of you, as you used to call it in the, southern, in the Shadowlands, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he looked more to them, or less, he, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all their stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I don't think any stage production, any movie, or even the picture that Lewis paints for us here will compare with what we will experience through eternal life in the presence of the King. He desires eternal life for all, but each person must choose to follow his son or not. Father draws us by helping us to see Christ for whom he really is. Why would anyone pass that up? But if you have not yet, why not today cross the threshold of life and believe this morning Come into that present possession of eternal life and the wonderful relationship of knowing the only true God and the one who sent him, Jesus Christ. You could say today, Lord Jesus, I see you in your word and I no longer want to resist you. I trust you with my soul and my body. I believe the promise of John 3.16 that whoever believes on Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. And I receive your gift of eternal life. If that's your decision today, or if you make it later, it's not too late until it is. Please share that decision with us or with someone you know who you are confident have eternal life in themselves. Once that decision is made, it's vital that one grows in their understanding and faith. We would love to help you with that. We'd really like to know what God is doing in your life so that we can pray for you. And we'd like to point you in helpful directions to go on with Christ.
Please rise, and we'll recite a couple of verses here. Oh, sorry. Together. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God.